0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: A survivor of domestic violence is sentenced to decades in prison for the crimes of her abusive partner. But when does the burden placed on mothers become unreasonable? This is the Tondaleo Hall story. Megan, please excuse my voice today. Yes, I noticed you're sounding a little
0: horsey, a little hoarse. A little hoarse. yeah. I've had a little bit of a cold. Yeah, me too. We're just getting over
1: it. Yeah, it's I'm okay. not going to lie. I kind of like the way it sounds. <laughs> I do too. You sound a little, what did, what did James <laughs> husky? say? Husky? Yeah. yeah. I like the way it sounds. Thank you. I hope that listeners aren't too thrown by it.
0: I don't think so. I always like the way you sound. Thank you. Give me the heart
1: emoji. Thank you. Today's case highlights some overarching issues with criminal justice policies. You know, we love when they have cases that highlight some of the laws and policies that have unintended consequences. Yeah. And I know where
0: you're going with this case, too. Even though I don't know it, the intro really, you know, I was like, oh, I get
1: it. And the interesting thing is, you know, I have a really long list of cases. This case was not even on my list. In fact, I was researching another case and I came across her case and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do that.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so
1: I'll explain that case in the midst of this because they're relevant, but okay, great. just wanted to let you know, this case was not a listener suggestion. I know. Sometimes we still come up with our own. <laughs> sometimes. It's,
0: it's actually hard though, because we have such
1: a great list of case suggestions, but there's
0: ones that I'm drawn to also. And as I don't know about you, but what I could be into this week might be totally different than next week. So yeah. it's based on, you know, my vibe, my issues that I'm concerned about, my mood, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And Amy, sorry, just before you get into today's episode, I have one more quick reminder that our first book club is meeting this week, Thursday, September 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and that's available for patrons at the Femme Fatale level and above. You can see Patreon for more details. The book, as a reminder, also is Irreparable by Mark Gerardo, and I know you're reading it as well.
1: Megan, I can't tell you the last time a book has gripped me like that. You know, I only read nonfiction. Yes. And it's rare that a nonfiction book reads like fiction. And I could not put it down. It's haunting me, that book.
0: I knew you were going to feel that way. And I'm sure our other you know, patrons who are going to participate are going to have as much to say about it as we will. So we look forward to seeing you there. And honestly,
1: even if you don't come to the book club, you should get the book. It's incredible. Absolutely agree. Thank you. Great. Tondaleo Hall, who also goes by Tony, lived in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Tony was born in 1984 and adopted at just 7 months old. By her own account, her adoptive parents were excellent. They showed her a lot of love. She also had a brother who was adopted. He was about 10 years older, but sounds like a very happy upbringing. This was until 8th grade when Tony's mother died of cancer. Oh. And this was really, of course, hard for her because she was very close with her mother, and this leaves her father who now had to support a teenager who about a year later got pregnant. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, so Tony would end up living with her aunt for a while, but in 10th grade, she would drop out of high school, and this was really due to the struggles of being a single mom, because she did end up having that child that she got pregnant with. That's very yeah. young, too. It is, yeah. When Tony's son turned one years old, she met a man by the name of Robert Baxton Jr. At this point, she was about 17 years old, and her and her son moved into an apartment with him in Oklahoma City. Now, I'm not sure what his age was, but... I get the impression that he was a bit older, but it's unclear how much older. Okay. The couple would also have two children of their own during this time. So now the family has three children. There are two boys and a girl. At the time of the events we will be discussing, the girl was about three months old. The youngest boy was almost two years old. And the oldest boy was about six years old. Okay. Tony's relationship with Robert was very violent, unfortunately. As court documents would reveal, she was repeatedly abused by him. He would choke her, punch her and also berate her with verbal attacks. Now, in addition to this verbal and physical abuse, he was also, by many reports, very controlling. He would often keep her from her family and friends and would try to intervene in her relationship with her children. A cousin of Tony reported that she disagreed with how Robert was raising the children because he believed that boys should not be kissed or hugged or loved because it would make a, quote, punk out of them. And it would stop them from being a man. So there were occasions when Tony would be giving physical affection to her boys and he would intervene and make her feel as if something she was doing was wrong.
0: Oh, that's terrible.
1: And as we often see in domestic violence cases, because this very much is that kind of case, Mm -hmm. whenever she tried to leave the relationship, Robert threatened to take her children and said he would never allow her to see them again. He also threatened to utilize an alleged family contact he had with the Department of Human Services.
0: That's definitely a tactic that abusers use as well. Yep.
1: And unfortunately, it worked. You know, Tony didn't leave, but she was trying to. At the time of this event, she was working full-time. She was putting aside money quietly so that her and her children would be able to leave Robert and move into a place of their own. Okay. And Tony was close with her father, and her father was helping her uh, search for an apartment for her and the children. Got it. Unfortunately... They would never move into their own apartment because soon an event would change everything. In the fall of 2004, Tony sought medical care for her youngest boy, who was 20 months old at the time. Now, she took him to urgent care because he had a swollen leg, which was also red. Mm-hmm. It turned out he had a fractured femur and 12 fractured ribs. Wow. As they should, the doctors contacted authorities because they recognized that these injuries were quite concerning. Yeah. Now, the rib fractures looked like they were from being squeezed, Ugh. and they were at least 10 to 14 days old, while the femur fracture was, they reported, probably less than seven days old. Authorities then found that her almost three-month-old daughter had unexplained injuries as well. She, too, had a fractured femur, seven fractured ribs, and a fractured toe. Oh gosh! So shortly after a visit to the hospital for these injuries, both she and Robert were arrested on charges of child abuse. Tony is 19 years old at this time. Now, when Tony was questioned by the police, at one point, she falsely said that she injured the children. And then at another point, she said that the five-year-old had jumped off the bed and broke the leg of the 20-month-old. Tony denied ever laying a hand on the children. So she recanted Mm. her initial statement. And she also denied any knowledge that Robert had been abusing them. Well,
0: that's not uncommon that she's covering for him.
1: Yeah. Well, regardless, she was also worried about DHS taking her kids because she did have a friend whose child had broken his arm and the child was taken away from the mother. So these things happen. Right. And she was also taken away from a home at three months old. Remember? Right. Tony would end up pleading guilty to four counts of permitting child abuse for which she faced up to life in prison. Whoa. Yeah. Life? She- Oh wow, okay. She entered what is known as a blind plea of guilty. Have you ever heard of this? A blind plea? No. I never heard of this. No. Okay, I'm I'm glad I wasn't the only one because I thought I knew what there was to know about the about the different kinds of pleas, but never heard of it. So a blind plea, it's very risky. It's basically taking a plea without a deal for the sentence. So her public defender advised her to do this. So it basically involves the defendant throwing themselves at the mercy of the court. So the, it's this, essentially you're pleading guilty, but nobody decides but the
0: judge decides.
1: Yeah, so in most plea bargains, the prosecution agrees with a recommended sentence yeah. in which the judge usually follows. The judge, not the prosecutor, has the final say over the sentencing. Right. So the judge may be more lenient if you are found guilty at trial. However, the judge can sentence you within the full range of punishment in these types of pleas. So an example would be like, let's say the prosecutor is offering you a plea deal of one year probation and you think you could get a better deal from the judge, you can enter a blind plea and roll the dice. Right. A roll of the dice might end up getting you five years in prison though. And so it's almost, I don't know why her public defender would suggest she do this. From what I understand, if you believe that the deal the state is offering you is unfair, but you still want to plead guilty, a blind plea may be the best option, especially if there are mitigating factors. Right. And I believe Tony probably her public defender, believe that there were mitigating factors since she she was was abused.
0: Yeah, she was abused and she was young too, so I could see where they might think this, yeah.
1: For our listeners who aren't aware, there are a few types of pleas. Obviously, there's the guilty plea. Mm -hmm. This is the most common type of plea. Megan, what are the numbers? Like 97, 98% of cases?
0: 97% of cases will be resolved through a Guilty plea,
1: and this will guarantee that the plea deal the prosecutor offers is what. What it does is it guarantees to you. Uh, it guarantees
0: a reduced sentence or a reduced sentence because of reduced charges.
1: Either way, it's lesser time in exchange for a guilty plea. All right, and there are two other plea types that are not so straightforward. Okay, do you know the difference between a no contest plea and an Alford plea?
0: Um, so an Alford plea is where you acknowledge that the state has. We've talked about this. Has enough. Evidence that it would be likely you'd be convicted, but you're not taking any responsibility. A no contest plea is very similar to an Alford. So I would say no contest just means you're not contesting the charges;
1: you're accepting the fact that you would be found guilty. But I'm not sure how that differs yeah, from an it's, Alford. It's funny because when I was first doing this research, I'm like, I know the difference between these two. And then when I was trying to articulate it, I realized just how similar they are. Right. And the the biggest difference is that with a no contest plea, you of course, like as you said, you're not admitting to being guilty, but you're acknowledging that the state has enough evidence to prove you guilty at trial. Okay. So it's pretty much the legally, it's the exact same thing as entering a plea of guilty for the purposes of a conviction. But what how does that differ? Okay, so, you're gonna so, explain. Yeah, so I'll, see that difference So, so the outcomes Al- are the same, but an Alfred plea, you are not you are not merely acknowledging that the state can prove you guilty. You're saying that you are entirely innocent. So, you're maintaining your innocence. But, like I said, the outcome is exactly the same. So, in practice, these are essentially, to me, the same thing. They're kind the of same thing. Right? Yeah, they're very similar. I would just imagine that certain jurisdictions and states use one over the other, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. So, in Tony's case, the blind plea would not end up being favorable for her because she was sentenced to 30 years in prison.
0: Did her, any of her children, did they die or suffer from, I know they suffered, so don't get me wrong, but permanent,
1: you know, disability? Not that I'm aware of. The children were placed with family members of Tony Mm -hmm. and there were no lasting, obviously there might be emotional. Yeah, of course. You know, lasting emotional scars, but as far as we know, the children did make a full recovery physically. Okay. Wow. So, so the judge really, you know, she probably didn't... I know it could have gone up to life. It could have been worse. But 30 was definitely more than she suspected. But what did her boyfriend get? Okay, let's get The one there. who's okay. the
0: actual abu- abusive one. Okay. Just really quickly, there was never a, a showing that she abused them, right? It was just that
1: she failed to protect them? Correct. Okay. Yes. So the judge argued that not that she abused the children... The judge argued that she lied by not testifying more forcefully against her boyfriend. So she claimed that she didn't know that her boyfriend was abusing the children. And she did testify because his case did go to trial. Right. And many people said when she testified that she kept staring over at him, making eye contact with him. Um, she wavered a lot and she to tell you the truth, Megan, she seems scared. But, She's
0: afraid of her abuser. Well,
1: obviously the judge
0: doesn't understand the way abuse In this case, it doesn't sound like he understands the consequences of being a
1: victim as well. Well, wait until you hear this. All right. So we would come to find out that, yes, she was very much scared of him because he was threatening her during the proceedings. Of course. So they were transported from the jail to the courthouse together in the same correctional transportation. It's
0: unbelievable.
1: And he was also permitted to send her letters throughout the two years leading up to his trial. Like, this is very bad procedure. Oh, God, yeah. She had... um, We'll talk about. It. She does end up doing, you know, post conviction applications. But okay. I want to just read a quote from a declaration that she made. Okay. We were transported to the courthouse together. He would threaten me and berate me about my decision to testify. He called me a bitch and teased me, saying, What can you tell? You think it's going to help you? I would arrive at the courthouse shaking and in tears. I had to make a complaint before we were finally transported separately. Even when we arrived in different vans, we were still placed in holding cells right next to one another at the courthouse. He asked me why I was testifying against him and threatened to kick my ass because of it. I felt terrified and sick to my stomach. I could never get away from him. Okay, so Megan, you asked me, Robert Braxton Jr., what does he end up getting? Right. Well, remember I said he went to trial? Yes. Because he pled not guilty. However, during the proceedings, he pled guilty to abusing the children. So you know sometimes this happens, right? Yes, I do.
0: I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say I feel
1: like he's going to get less time than 30 years. All right, you ready for this? No. You're going to be incensed. I I already knew it. Yeah. He received a 10-year suspended sentence and was released on probation, having served two years in jail awaiting trial. No. Yep. So he served two years in prison for the one who physically harmed the child, and Tony sentenced to 30 years. Megan, the same judge sentenced both of them. That's a 28-year disparity. He admitted to fully harming the children. She never by any account admitted to harming her children nor was there any evidence that she harmed her children. Her only mistake, which I think is a mistake, but her only mistake was not stopping him from harming them. This is gender
0: punishment. He's punishing her for being a mother.
1: So he's the, punishing her for being the female in this case. Yeah, so the assistant DA talked about you know when they talk about the judgment he talked about believing, you know, she knew more than she let on and the reason that Braxton got a light sentence is because she was covering for him so I, I like I don't know if they're trying to insinuate that she's the one who physically harmed the children I, it makes it makes no sense. I think no they're sense. insinuating
0: that she covered for him she wouldn't tell the truth and they're punishing her for that but yeah. way more harshly than is you know in the values of our system we're supposed to be following proportionality mm-hmm. you know hum- humaneness and that you know this violates some of the very core values of our system. I'm also unclear as to why he would get such a light sentence. And I know there are many different reasons why um, people get lighter sentences, but that seems very extreme. Although you're saying there was a 10-year suspended sentence, correct?
1: Actually, Megan, can you explain the difference between probation? Because a suspended sentence means he does not have to serve any more time in a correctional facility. So that essentially means it's similar to probation. Correct, it's similar. However,
0: if a person gets probation as a sentence, that means that there is no jail time and there's no threat of jail time. Um, So they are sentenced to probation. I mean, if they violate the terms of their probation, obviously they could be sentenced to prison. A suspended sentence, let's say you get a 10-year suspended sentence, you may or may not be required to serve some jail time, but essentially you will spend that time on probation. However, if you violate any of the terms of your probation, the judge can invoke the entire sentence. So it's, gotcha. it, it can automatically, the judge can say, you violated the terms, so now you're going to serve 10 years. And there's nothing that you can really do to contest that because you're suspended so long as you don't mess up. Gotcha. It's so, still
1: extremely light yeah. for this case. So it's similar to probation in that it's conditional. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine he did not have any contact with the children, I couldn't verify that. Oh, I'm sure but there was no-contact sh- order. So, you know, meanwhile, Tony's family was raising her three children while she went, uh, she went off to a medium-security prison about a half hour outside of Oklahoma City called Mabel Bassett Correctional Center. Now, this is the only facility for women that can house mental health patients and the shoe, the segregated housing unit. Mm-hmm. That prison is the only place for inmates in protective custody or on death row. So although it's medium security in name, it doesn't sound very much like a medium security prison to me.
0: It doesn't, but it's
1: a female prison? It's a female prison. I think that's the difference, too. You know, there's a limited number of female prisons. Also, their death row is pretty small. Do you know how many women are actively on Oklahoma's death row? Four. Only one. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you know the case of Brenda Andrew.
0: I don't know. So no. she
1: was a Sunday school teacher. She killed her ex-husband along with her new boyfriend, took out a large insurance policy, fled to Mexico. Like, not good things. She's the one woman who is on death row in Oklahoma. And I've not heard of that case. So while incarcerated, Tony did whatever she could to better herself. She took parenting classes. Mm-hmm. Not sure if they were mandated or not. Mm-hmm. She earned her GED. And she also got her license in cosmetology. And she never stopped fighting for her freedom. Good for her. While incarcerated, she filed many appeals. Uh They were not successful, nor were her many motions for a modified sentence. Because I think she was taking, it seems to me, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me at some point she was taking on some blame, you know, for the fact that she didn't see maybe the warning signs, but she adamantly denied that she ever witnessed abuse. Like maybe she should have known. That her children were being harmed, but she says she had never actually saw her children being harmed. Okay. So she did stick to that, the fact that she never went to that. Yes. So as is often the case, out of appeals, best chance of release when you have no appeals left?
0: Well, you take a shot at commutation or clemency which is still a long
1: shot yeah so
0: commutation could happen for extreme sentences like hers
1: yeah so commutations are used they lessen punishment so we see this a lot in death penalty cases when Mm -hmm. they be when they're commuted to life without parole right it's it's discretionary and it's often the product of a judicial ruling or some change in the law isn't it also
0: like commutation or clemency can be uh the sitting governor who's on their way out can give can grant those yeah Yeah.
1: but there then there's a pardon though Right, which is right. different. So okay. clemency and pardon, I believe, are the same. Okay, got it. So being granted clemency or being granted a pardon, it's not necessarily forgiving someone. It's not necessarily saying you are innocent, but it can be. A lot of pardons that we see are pardons for innocence. right? And that's when essentially there's an acknowledgement that you did not commit the crime, that you are innocent. However, there could be acquittals for other reasons, and therefore it only relieves the legal consequences of guilt. Okay. Okay, so you've heard before, like, someone could be pardoned because maybe they had good conduct, like Angel Bumpus, something like that. If they can't pardon her on the grounds that they think she's innocent, they could pardon her just saying that, you know, this evidence was shit and the sentence was not fair. Got it. So her first attempt was in 2015, and she made it to the second round of a two-step hearing process, but she was ultimately denied. Next attempt in 2018, denied pretty much immediately. And, you know, I'm sure she was feeling defeated. How could you not? But she had some hope because her case finally started to receive national attention. And, you know, a lot of times that's what these individuals need. They need somebody to get their story out there. Can
0: you remind me before that? I'm sorry, what year was she sentenced? I'm trying to get an idea yeah. when she was going up, how long she was in prison for. And I couldn't recall.
1: When she goes up for her first attempt for a commutation, uh-huh. she's already been in prison for about a decade.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So, you know, feeling defeated, but hope is renewed. Several large media outlets started to report on her story and others like hers. Okay. One was a very in-depth investigation published by BuzzFeed News, and they found that 28 mothers in 11 states were sentenced to 10 years or more for failing to protect. So we're going to talk a lot about failure to protect these types of laws. Okay. So in each of these cases, including Tony's, there was evidence that the mother herself was also a victim of the abuse. Mm -hmm. And she was one of three where the mother got a longer sentence than the man who actually physically abused the child. That's the most shocking part. That always brings me back to like the felony
0: murder law, right? When we talk about those, the person who... You're going down for someone else. And so many cases, we know where the person who actually perpetrated the murder gets out before
1: the person who did not. Oh, you're talking about accomplice liability also.
0: Yeah, I always get those two confused too.
1: Well, because they're both similar in the sense that you're you're serving time for something you didn't actually do. Yeah. In a way, right? Yeah. So many groups got behind her as a result of this, like women's advocacy groups, the ACLU in oh, wow. Oklahoma, many human rights groups. There was um, a letter writing campaign by a local advocacy organization and it resulted in almost a thousand letters being sent to the Oklahoma County DA. And as a result, he wrote a letter in support of her to the parole board, and he explicitly advocated for Tony's commutation. And this was the first time that an Oklahoma DA had done such a thing. Wow. Okay. So, you know, you know, we see these progressive prosecutors, yeah. and I think this could be one of them.
0: I love it. Just got a little bit of a chill on that one, because I do get excited when I hear about progressive
1: DAs. And the ACLU of Oklahoma, I mentioned they got involved, but they didn't just get involved with advocacy. They represented Tony. Because not only did they believe that she was abused and denied justice, Mm -hmm. they also recognized that success in Tony's case would create the legal precedent for courts to grant greater weight to evidence of abuse, which could help protect many other abuse victims in Oklahoma. That's great. Because, again, this is not as rare as we would think. You just heard me lay out some stats and we'll talk a lot more about how these failure to protect laws unfairly target women yeah finally in october of 2019 the oklahoma pardon and parole board voted in favor of the recommendation for the commutation of tony hall's sentence Mm -hmm. shortly after governor kevin stitt approved the request and tony was released the following month on november 8th 2019 oh i'm so glad to hear that she finally walked free after serving more than 15 years that's a long time her children were now teenagers and young adults very luckily, she kept in contact with them and has a relationship with them throughout her time. Oh, wow. So as I mentioned, the children were with her family. Oh, that's great. In a recent interview, Tony acknowledged that while she is doing pretty well, being a convicted felon is tough and she has had a very hard time adjusting. Now, she's one of the lucky ones in the sense that almost immediately she got a job at Great Clips, you know, like the National Haircut Place.
0: Oh, no, I don't know. Okay. That it's one. like okay. It's like similar to... Supercuts.
1: Super, exactly. So One she, of because she
0: was licensed as a cosmetologist, she, right? Yep, exactly.
1: So she. Oh, that's good. So she currently, as as of this interview, which was less than two years ago, she was an assistant manager there, and she was working towards her master's in cosmetology. Good for her. Yeah. She also talked about how grateful she was to be there now for her family. Mm -hmm. So two of her kids graduated. She became a grandma. Oh, wow. I also read one report where she had a new baby herself since her release.
0: Well, because she would have gotten out in her 30s. So she'd still be of childbearing
1: age. Yep. And I just want to read this quote that she gave in an interview. Some days I'll be driving down the street and I'll just start crying. I'm just thankful to be out. I'm not supposed to be out until 2043 and I am out and God has really blessed me.
0: Wow, she sounds grateful too.
1: Yeah, so there's a positive outcome in this case. However, many women are not so lucky. So I want to focus on Oklahoma for a minute and the issues that women are having in that state. All right. I did not know this, but Oklahoma has America's highest incarceration rate for women. About twice the national average. I would have guessed it was one up there, but I would not have known it was the highest. I don't want to say what state I thought was the highest. I know you know. Of course. (laughs) course. But I don't want to make anyone upset. Okay. And more than half of the state's female inmates are survivors of domestic assault or sexual violence. And those are just the ones we know. Yeah. Just reported. Yeah. So this case underscores the problem faced by victims in that state. They are blamed for not confronting their abusers. We know, Megan, victims, we teach about this, I'm sure, in your Women in Crime class. Victims of domestic violence suffer from depression, low self-esteem, feelings of paralysis, and they're very fearful that, that their partner is going to hurt themselves and or their children. PTSD. Yeah, and it makes them reluctant to leave their abuser. Of course. Another Oklahoma case that has gotten a lot of attention lately... Remember, I thought I was researching a certain case. We got many requests for the case of Rebecca Hope. That name sounds very familiar. And that's how I came across Tony Hall's case because I researched Rebecca. So about, I'd say, a few hours into writing Rebecca's script, I switched gears. Now, Rebecca's case is more tragic because her two-year-old son was killed by her boyfriend while she was at work. Ugh, I'll yeah. explain why I chose Tony's case in just a moment. But I just want to give you very brief background on Rebecca's case. So her boyfriend was abusing her child, unbeknownst to her, and unfortunately, one day, he beat the child to the point of death. He ran off, and a few days later, he died by suicide. Mm. He also carved Rebecca as innocent on a nearby tree. Oh. So once they found out that he was deceased, the investigation automatically turned to 29-year-old Rebecca, who was charged with first-degree murder. First-degree. First-degree, because in Oklahoma, parents who fail to protect their children from child abuse can be charged with the same crime as the actual abuser. That's like
0: felony murder then, right? It is.
1: Absolutely. It's very similar. Okay. Now, she she was adamant that she had no idea that her boyfriend was abusing her child. She had noticed some minor injuries. She said she did approach him at one point when he said, you know, this is just normal nicks and you know, he's getting nicks and bruises, normal kid stuff. So she actually was searching online for symptoms of the flu because she said her son was acting off at one point point. Okay, and she wasn't sure what was going on. This was like two days before his death. He was lethargic. I don't know if this has anything to do with the abuse that ultimately led to his death, but she did admit to doing some searches on, you know, what's the signs of a flu? What are signs of like... Child abuse. So she was starting it sounded like she was suspecting things were going on. Right. So the police say that her searches prove that she knew her boyfriend was abusing her child. She was suspicious of it. And that was really that that point right there is I think why they went after her. And they also had no one else to blame because he had died by suicide. Right. The prosecutors say that, you know, she was guilty of permitting her child to be murdered over the and it was an eight day trial. She pled not guilty because she, she was at, you know, by all accounts, no one ever said she was anything but a loving mother. The trial lasted eight days. And during the trial, they repeatedly showed graphic images of her baby's dead body covered in bruises. And they even left it up for 10 minutes during the closing arguments. And there's only one reason why they would use this tactic. Yeah, of course. This is shock value.
0: This is like, you know, just the sympathy vote. And it is shocking. And look, this is an important conversation because I don't I don't think a, there's a blanket approach here. I don't believe that every mother who fails to protect should be punished. I don't believe that every mother who fails to protect shouldn't be punished. Mm-hmm. This is situational. And, yep. and, you know, like you said, so many of them are victims of abuse. Yeah, But, you know, for mothers who've turned a blind eye, you know, that's, that's also a different
1: story. This is not yeah. a one-size-fits-all no. issue. Yeah, but there's a burden of proof in our legal system. There is. And I'm not sure it was met. It took the jury less than two hours to convict her. And again, I'm not surprised when you see images of this battered child. You want to see justice.
0: Everybody wants to see justice. This is why crime policies are passed, because we have an emotional response. But I think if a jury only deliberates for two hours, they haven't taken their
1: job as seriously as they should have. Well, listen to her sentence, okay? It's very interesting. She was given a 16-month sentence, and the judge made it clear that the reason he chose 16 months, one month for every year in which her child would have been in her legal custody. Her child was two when he got murdered. She is expected to spend 13 months behind bars due to time that was already served while awaiting trial. Now, I don't want to spend time on Rebecca's case and did the system get it right, but I just wanted to highlight her case because both Tony's case and Rebecca's case show us this issue with failure to protect laws. Now, these laws exist in many states and they have drawn criticism from domestic violence experts. Because in practice, they criminalize victims of domestic abuse who may be too scared to leave.
0: They also show what a wide discrepancy can be applied to sentences, what discretion.
1: And that, thank you for bringing that up. Because, you know, when I was doing Rebecca's case, I thought it was shocking. And then when I saw that in Rebecca's case, the child was murdered, she only got a 16 month sentence. In Tony's case, she got a 30 year sentence and and her children children are alive and well. You said
0: you were, I'm just curious, you said you would tell us why you chose Tony's case over Rebecca's. Yes. What was the reason?
1: Tony is an African-American woman. Mm -hmm. Rebecca is a white woman. I'm not saying there were any intended racial biases, but we can't ignore that. No, we can't. So So I'm not saying I know why there's such a discrepancy. I just think it's important for listeners to know that in these two cases, One case in which a life was lost, one case in which a life was not lost, and you see the outcome so very different.
0: But to play devil's advocate also, was Tony's partner black? He was. And he still got a light sentence as compared to her. He did, but- I, it, it's just yeah, you right. it yeah, yeah, of course. no no
1: i think no i could think, race
0: play a role yes race and gender but if we're doing a direct racial comparison then he still
1: benefited there was doesn't seem to be a racial bias against him i think you are right and but i think black women in our system get hit the hardest although black men get targeted at the earlier stages mm-hmm. once in the system yes i think the book gets thrown at black women more okay. so i would but, agree but either way i'm glad you brought that up i think that is important to note And also, it's important to note that in Rebecca's case, there was nobody else to take the fall. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. So if her boyfriend, the actual murderer, was still alive, then I'm sure things would have been a little different. I'd imagine he would have got the book thrown at him.
0: Well, you'd imagine, but as we, as you've shown us, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen.
1: All right, Megan, let's talk a little bit about failure to protect laws. Okay. So the goal of these types of laws are basically to encourage caretakers to report instances of child abuse. Really, it's just, it's, to me, it seems more like the fear of punishment for individuals if they do not. I'm not saying I disagree with it because I think it's important that people have incentives. I do too. It's
0: just a matter of how we incentivize people, right? Do we incentivize them with punishment or the threat of punishment or do we incentivize them with not like a reward, but, you know, Mm -hmm. by fostering an environment where it makes so much sense, like creating an environment where someone can report it and doesn't fear the reprisal and actually knows that they're going to get help. So.
1: Which way you're going to incentivize it might be the issue. I mean, I, I have heard of cases where they do offer witness protection in cases like right, this. But right. we also know there's issues with witness protection and, you know.
0: There are. I just mean it's, you know, there's all this fear, especially with the abuse victims. And then there's now another fear. So instead yeah. of... The punishment, I wonder if we shouldn't just be going the opposite direction mm-hmm. in order to encourage yep. you know, someone to report.
1: Failure to protect laws are not across the board, mm-hmm. of course. So current federal law does have a failure to protect component mm-hmm. under the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act. Mm-hmm. States may elect to impose stricter standards than the federal system does, and many do. Now, states vary as to whether or not they even have a statute. And if they do have a statute, wide variation in penalties, from civil penalties to criminal penalties, you see, like you know, life in prison. Mm-hmm. 48 states have some variation of failure to protect laws. Mm-hmm. Like many policies, although the intentions may be good, there have been many unintended consequences. And this is women feeling the brunt of these unintended consequences. For one, although failure to protect laws are written in gender neutral language, they're very clearly disproportionately enforced against women. Right, I would have expected that, yep. Another issue is that I think it's hard to prove Because for most days, this hinges on whether or not a parent was able to stop the child from being abused and whether or not they reported the abuse. Mm -hmm. So, of course, reporting is very straightforward. Mm -hmm. But whether or not you were able to stop, like, what what does that mean? Like, what does that intervention have to look like? Right. And as we briefly touched on, this ignores the realities of the domestic situation that a woman is in and the capacity for the mother to get help when a mother is being victimized herself. Uh Uh-huh. When women in these abusive situations are held accountable for another person's actions, and these actions, again, in Tony's case, she claims she didn't even know was happening, the prosecution is really just furthering the cycle of distrust in the system and alienating people who need the most help. So it's the opposite of the intended purpose.
0: That's kind of what I was trying to say before, by threatening them. You know, they've already got this fear. They're already victims. They're afraid for their children. They're afraid for themselves. I'm not saying every situation is the same, but yeah, it just think that the consequences are the opposite of what we would hope.
1: And these themes come up all the time in our show, that our society just places a higher burden on the mother than on the father, right? A mother is seen as the person who is the caretaker, who has to provide a nurturing environment. Mm -hmm. And although things are shifting, luckily, you know, historically, males were seen as like the breadwinner, they're in control of the house, and the women are subservient. It, there is
0: a shift, but there's still these, I, I want to say, like cultural attributions, like long held ones that, you know, mm-hmm. shape your belief. Yeah. I mean, you know, gender roles. And, and immediately when you were talking to about the way that Tony's partner wanted to socialize the children, you know, it sounded again, like how we gender socialize children in, in kind of in general.
1: Mm-hmm. And even when there's evidence of, say, like a loving, non-abusive relationship between, you know, a child and a mother. The judge is still going to impose a harsh punishment on a mother who failed to protect, even when she did not know what was going on, because people believe she should have known what was going on.
0: Yeah, I think this is labeling theory, too. I hear like, you know, she's labeled, quote, the bad mom. Yeah. And therefore, the sentence is to fit this punishment
1: for what we consider a bad mom. Yeah, it also, it's a little reminiscent of Melissa Lucio's case. Yes. As well. In Melissa Lucio's case, a lot of people believe she unfairly was sentenced to the death penalty because she did not do her job as a mother. And
0: look, I I mean, I'm not a parent, but I do believe that as parents, you have a duty to protect. And I'm sure you feel the duty to protect your children, right? But these are not ordinary circumstances. These are ones where, you know, uh, the parent does not have you know, the same partnership or the same uh, abilities to protect Mm -hmm. their children than if you're in a healthy, stable relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely seeing, you know, this is like classic, by the way, women in crime, Mm -hmm. how we talk about, you know, men are typically punished more harshly in the system, except for when it's a crime that violates gender roles. And these, this is the classic crime. And in this case,
1: women are punished more harshly for being women and committing these crimes. So, Megan, I know the answer to this, but did the system get it right? No. I mean, eventually they did, I guess, because Tony is now home with her family, but... Eventually, yes. And
0: I I am not saying, Amy, by the way, that she shouldn't have been punished, because Mm -hmm. I don't know that I agree with that. I do believe she was a victim. You know, I I do think she was afraid. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much she knew. There's probably a punishment that maybe fit this crime in mm-hmm. some way. Um, it sounds like she made the most of her time. I still think it was entirely mm-hmm. too much that she was punished and he was not punished nearly enough. So I think the justice system was totally um, you know, unbalanced in this case.
1: I think the biggest issue I have, other than the stark difference between Rebecca's case and Tony's case, is the disproportionality of her punishment in relation to her boyfriend's light sentence. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what uh, I but was I'm saying. Like saying. that's what, remember before you said, why this case, that was uh, another part yeah. of it that to me, I would, I just can't believe that. And the fact that there are a few other cases as highlighted in that investigative report, right there, there are other women who are serving more time than the actual abuser who I mean, admitted it, wrongdoing. It's so counterintuitive.
0: The abuser should be serving much more significant time. Yeah. And, and I think it's counterintuitive and I think it's good to discuss these laws and and hope that they're going to progress.
1: So I'm glad to see that so many organizations got behind this woman and ultimately resulted in her release. And I hope we can use this case as a way to educate us on how we can maybe better enforce failure to protect laws. I think so. And of course, as you're saying, there's so many organizations now that you can
0: get behind. So listeners can certainly um, look into these organizations and support the cases, you know, go to the petitions. And, you know, there's a lot you could probably do in this regard. So I think it's, it's, it's a good motivator.
1: Yes, definitely check our sources and our show notes where we'll be having some links to some of these reports that we had highlighted. And you'll see links in those reports as well, places right. where you can go to learn more and to help. Great. Thank you, Amy. Very interesting case today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime.
0: Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash Crime.
1: Sources for today's episode include TheOklahoman.com, The Norman Transcript, BuzzFeed News, Washington Post, New York Times, 60 Minutes, CNN, ACLUOK.org, Scholarly Commons, the Pre-Sentence Report, and the Habeas Corpus Petition. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death